This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The military health system is integral to the U.S. national security strategy. It provides a diverse offering of healthcare services, logistics, public health and research training, and supports our armed forces and their families. Today, the U.S. Department of Defense is transforming the MHS to improve how it operates and delivers health and care. The reform efforts focus on organizational, infrastructure, and manpower changes, and the Defense Health Agency, DHA, plays a critical role in ensuring these reforms are successful. What are the Defense Health Agency's strategic priorities? How is DHA working to create a more integrated military health system? And what is DHA doing to combat the COVID-19 pandemic? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Lieutenant General Ronald Place. Director of the Defense Health Agency. General, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Also joining me from IBM is Mark Newsom. Mark, welcome as always. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. General Place, what is the mission of the Defense Health Agency and how is it how's that mission evolved since its inception? Sure. Thanks for asking. The the overall mission of the Defense Health Agency is to create a globally integrated military health system that's accountable as a combat support agency and achieves the department's um, uh, medical outcomes. So we call it the quadruple aim, and that is uh, optimize readiness, deliver better health, deliver better care, and do it with a lower cost. So in order to do that, we, we have enterprise-wide shared services within the agency, and, and, and through that process, we standardize clinical and business processes that then lead to those uh, lower costs, better health, better care, et cetera. And ultimately, it's all revolving around the concept of readiness. Readiness is a relatively general word, but the way that we think about it is two different factors, the first of which is the military health system and the DHA specifically should do everything it can as a military health system to make sure that every service member is medically ready to do their job. So we keep them healthy, and should they become sick, ill, injured, we rapidly return them to health. So that's the primary readiness uh, uh, measure. But then secondarily, we have to be able to do that as a, as a traveling team. So when service members are deployed around the world, then healthcare, military healthcare goes with them. That's the traveling team part. And, and then the same sort of function. So as a medical team, can we do the same thing? Can we keep the troops, the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, Marines, can we keep them healthy in their operational environment? Or should they become sick, ill, injured, or wounded, can we, again, rapidly return them to optimal health. And to do that, then you need a a ready medical force. So is that medical team trained and ready for anything 
that those operational requirements will throw that in, uh, around the world. That's important context. So, General, the COVID-19 pandemic remains a singular issue impacting how we are living our lives currently. Can you tell us how DHA has contributed to the fight against this virus? Yeah, thanks, Michael. So, since that's really what we've been focusing an awful lot of our attention on for the last four or five months, the list is pretty long. But more than anything, we're part of what the Secretary, Secretary Esper, is leading the entire department through, and that's really an unprecedented fight against an infectious disease, COVID-19. And to do that, it's required a joint synchronized effort across the Department of Defense and as part of the whole of government response here in America. And what that means for us is what can we do to, to, to keep our families, our staff, our service members safe? What can we do to provide health care and what resources can we, can we provide to this whole of government support? Now, as I already mentioned, readiness was sort of at the, the center of that quadruple aim. So the first is, as COVID is impacting the way that we deliver health care, how can we circumvent it? How can we mitigate it? So I'll give you some examples. Some of it is in testing. So whether it's symptomatic testing or asymptomatic testing, you have to have the ability to do it. When the pandemic started, we had a grand total of 15 laboratories and perhaps the ability to do a few hundred tests for COVID um, in March. And now today we do about 60,000 tests a week and we can do it in 126 different laboratories across the Department of Defense around the world. So it's huge. And, and since the start of the pandemic, we've done more than 700,000 uh, laboratory tests for COVID-19. When it comes to prediction tools, so we have a, a COVID-19 hospital impact model for epidemics. And, and what we do is we can use statistical modeling to predict where we're going to need more resources. That resourcing may be lab testing capabilities. It may mean uh, personal protective equipment. It may mean inpatient health capability, et cetera. And, and then we can move resources around the department based on what, uh, what information comes out of these modeling tools from access to care perspective. Uh, in general, I think all of us are used to seeing our providers face-to-face. That's generally the way that we do it in America. But we've rapidly transitioned from about 80,000 telehealth uh, appointments across the military health system per month to more than 500,000 telehealth appointments uh, across the DOD every single month. We postponed elective and, uh, and invasive procedures in late March with the idea that we're going to enhance the safety of our own staff. We're going to protect that supply line of personal protective equipment. We're going to preserve inpatient bed capability and also then have staff available to be um, uh, augmentees to communities that were hit hardest by COVID-19. That policy lasted for several weeks, but in late May then was lifted with the understanding that our, our PPE supply chains were intact, we had enough staff, we had enough bed space, those sorts of things. We changed the TRICARE benefit that allowed for expanded use of telephone access for telehealth support, in particular for applied behavioral analysis, which is part of our autism care demonstration project. We've changed the way that we've made lab testing available, in particular COVID and influenza testing available, so that anybody who's tested through our system, as soon as it's posted in our system, it's also posted and available to that individual person to see were they positive or were they negative on that particular test. Uh, And then finally, when it comes to just getting some advice, we have a a capability called the Nurse Advice Line. In general, if you look across our system on any sort of day-to-day, we average about uh, 2,000 or maybe a little bit less than that calls per day to this Nurse Advice Line. At one point in April, that uh, 
achieved a peak of 10,000 calls per day with the idea that some of these questions are simple questions and they can just be addressed over the phone from a, from a registered nurse. And others are, I'm having symptoms. What can you help me? Can you direct me to the right place uh, to deal with my, my symptoms? And all of that together then is, uh, is a, a huge bit of what we've done in support of the COVID-19 response. Very important insights. Thank you, sir. So, you know, I want to get into some context around, we know the mission of uh, the Defense Health Agency, but more importantly, sir, how is it organized? What's the size of its overall budget, workforce composition, and its geographical and operational footprint? Well, those are all really great questions, and they, they change a little bit over time. So we're organized as a combat support agency, which means that we're here to support the combatant commanders, the military services. So, so we're an organization in support. Uh, ultimately, my office, the agency, we work for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. It's all part of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. The idea is to deliver high-quality, integrated, affordable health care service uh, to our service members, their families, retirees, and, and their families. We also manage uh, numerous enterprise support activities with the idea that uh, one organization can do it for the entire Department of Defense. A couple of examples, the Armed Forces Medical Examiner's Office or the Armed Services Blood Program. So all just consistent with what can be done for all the services and all the combatant commands in one centrally integrated area. Our organization is an organization in transition, and that's why I told you it's in a little bit of flux. I believe uh, as of earlier this spring, that the total number of staff uh, assigned or attached to the Defense Health Agency was in the neighborhood of about 25,000 people. And that's uh, uniform military, that's uh, civilian staff, that's contractor staff, uh, in, in our facilities, our hospitals, sometimes that's even some volunteers. We are generally uh, here in the United States, but the TRICARE benefit and a huge part of the Defense Health Agency um, capability is management of the TRICARE health plan, which is a uh, $15, $16 billion a year program, is two different managed care support contractors here in the United States that we work through. And then uh, and, uh, TRICARE's overseas contract for with more than 40 locations with these TRICARE offices uh, overseas to manage every single beneficiary challenge, every single patient challenge that we have anywhere around the world. That's in general uh, how we're organized. So perhaps you could tell us more about your role and duties as the director of the Defense Health Agency. How do you support the efforts of the department's overall mission? Sure, so I'm the third director, which means that we're a relatively young organization. We've been around for not yet seven years, so somewhat of a newbie, so to speak. Uh, I transitioned into the role of the director really to focus on four priorities, and they go within that quadruple aim that I mentioned before. And those, those aims, those priorities within the agency are fulfilled staff, satisfied patients, a ready medical force that I already described, and most importantly to me, uh, great outcomes, which if done in support of the, of the force is a medically ready force. But really then what that, that talks about is the is how do you lead an organization through transformation? Now, four new organizations have come into the DHA uh, since I've been the director, so four markets. Markets are confined geographical areas, so the National Capital Region is one of them, but the four markets are here D.C., which is uh, Southern Maryland, Northern Virginia, Jacksonville, Florida market, the Mississippi Coast market, which is the Biloxi Gulfport, uh, Pascagoula, and then uh, Central North Carolina, which is Fort Bragg, Fayetteville, as well as um, Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, with the idea that each of those markets share patients, staff, 
budgets and administrative support functions. So the, the major responsibilities that I have right now with our organizational construct is in the transition and transformation of the military health system and leading the DHA from its legacy of the TRICARE health plan and the TRICARE management activity to an organization that, that both manages the TRICARE program but also leads to that quadruple aim through healthcare delivery inside of our hospitals, our medical centers, and our clinics. So, General, what are the top management and operational challenges that you face in your position, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Well, I think the biggest challenge that we're having now really has to do with two functions. The first of the functions is the transition work, and and any major and significant healthcare system is a really complicated uh, organization. And where you, when you're going to merge four different organizations, as I manage, the DHA's legacy is the TRICARE management activity and all the culture and all the context that comes from that with that of Army medicine and Navy medicine and Air Force medicine as they've led, delivered uh, healthcare inside the hospitals, medical centers, and clinics, as I mentioned before, but within their cultures and within their ways of doing things. And that's not to say that the way that they were being done at any facility was wrong, but if we're going to standardize it across the entire system, that means significant change has to happen. In order to do that, again, merging four huge, complex organization is a very, very challenging uh, undertaking. And it's requiring the leadership of not just the Defense Health Agency, but the Surgeons General from each of the three services, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, along with their staff, in order to do it in a way that does lead to improvements in the system and while doing so, maintains or improves the safety of the care that we're delivering, that maintains or improves the quality of the care that we're, that we're delivering. So all that, that's a huge challenge. But then you throw the, the curveball on top of it the, while COVID is going on, and, and then how do, you, how do you innovate for a, a global pandemic that's throwing a biological agent at not just the healthcare team, but at the entire world and specifically, how does that work in the United States? And, and where are we innovating as part of this whole of government support? So balancing both of those really significant uh, missions is, is a really big deal. Now, for me, that's the strategic part, but, but then healthcare delivery is a very personal, emotional thing. So then it becomes important for us to recognize, even though there's thousands of employees, thousands of staff members uh, responsible for 9.6 million beneficiaries, so how do, we, how do we handle those big numbers and yet individual care? So how do we make sure that individuals who require recurring medical care seek the care they need when they're fearful? How do we set up systems that enable them to continue to come in even though their health isn't perfect and we can return them to optimal health care? Give an example when it comes to vaccines. Because that's a usual, well, I come in when I'm healthy and I get a vaccine so that I make sure I stay healthy. We've seen pockets of people who seem fearful about continuing with their vaccinations, not understanding that our systems have been set up to protect them, to allow them to come in to maintain that vaccination schedule. Similarly, the transition schedules, the, the four markets that I mentioned, how are we learning from the, the experts who are there, the best practices that are happening at those particular locations and, and how can we implement them as a standardized process across the entire system. And then finally, I mean, there's so much going on that people are, are, are worried about being overwhelmed or people are worried about all the change. Change is worrisome. 
And when you throw in these unknowns from the COVID, that makes it even more of a challenge. So we've, we've made it our mission to not make any reforms at any location that affect patient care until we know that, again, that access to high quality and safe care can happen for every single person every single time. That means a balance then of deliberate decision-making process where we can, but rapid decision-making processes where urgent conditions require it. And thank goodness we have incredible staff who are capable of doing those sorts of things so that we can be successful across that entire scope of responsibilities. Very important. So what has surprised you most, General Place, since taking over your current role? Well, uh, my background is in surgery, so I'm pretty familiar with uh, what happens inside our system. And I thought I had a really good handle on the complexities of the organization and the complexities of the system. But what I thought were the complexities and the realities of the complexities of the system are nowhere near what I, what I thought they would be. So that's been by far and away the biggest surprise to me. Now, the good part of that surprise, and probably the reason that I was surprised by it, is many of those challenges, many of those complexities are being managed and, in fact, led through challenges by really talented, dedicated leaders at all echelons within the military health system, such that I didn't even notice it before. So both the complexity of the system and the level of talent and dedication that exists within our our team. So, General, I I would like you to outline your key leadership principles and illustrate for us how you have uh, applied those principles during your career. More importantly, what characteristics make one an effective leader? Well, since there's been literally thousands of books written about that, I'd be arrogant if I told you that I have it figured out. But as a student of leadership, uh, perhaps say a couple of them, the first, and I think it comes with anybody in healthcare, is we have to be humble because uh, none of us are perfect and, and nothing that we do leads to perfection. Now, we can, we can work toward achieving perfection in our healthcare delivery, but we're humans taking care of humans, so humility has to be uh, a big part of it. Communication has to be a big part of it. I think most of us believe that the, the number one challenge in large organizations is the lack of effective communication. And I find it interesting that in most organizations that I've been, uh, there's also a complaint that we have too many meetings. Now, since meetings in general are for communication, what that really tells me is that the way that we set up our our communication venues, whether that be meetings or electronic communications, emails, messaging systems, text, whatever they are, we have not achieved perfection in our communication skills. So uh, always, always having an eye out for what are better ways to communicate what's most important in the organization and how we'll work toward them. And I guess the last thing I'll talk about is respect. As an American, I find it very interesting that most of us demand to be respected always, and yet many of us make others earn our respect, which is what I've termed, and maybe others have as well, I just haven't read it, a respect gap, because it can't work that way. You can't demand to get it and then make others earn it. And so how can we how can we give others the benefit of the doubt that respect is happening for us? And how can we work towards making sure that our actions, our words, our every effort shows that we respect everyone else around us? And in so doing, it's much easier to be effective teams. And whether it's um, in the Department of Defense, in, in the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, teams are what win battles. Teams are what win wars. Similarly, teams, healthcare delivery teams, are the ones who maintain wellness. Healthcare teams are the ones who return people to their optimum level of, of health. 
And so I give you those as sort of the things that I lean on from my experience as a, as a healthcare delivery leader and how I'm using those, uh, those principles or those uh, leadership techniques as adjuncts for me as the director of the DHA. What are the Defense Health Agency's strategic priorities? We will ask Lieutenant General Ronald Place, director of the Defense Health Agency, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Ronald Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency. My co-host today from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, General, would you elaborate on your strategic priorities for leading DHA from today into the future? Are there any key internal or external drivers and trends that have informed and shaped your vision and strategy for the agency? Sure. The, the four priorities that I have are, are those that are subordinate or integrated into the quadruple aim. Quadruple aim, as I, I mentioned briefly before, readiness is the key of everything, but uh, readiness and as it's related to better health, better care, and lower cost, meaning how can we truly drive value in the military health system? So if that's the whole strategic goal, then the priorities have to fit into that. So the first priority that I have has to do with the deployability of our force which means that they have to be ready to go anywhere the nation needs them to go anytime the nation needs them to go there. And in order to do that, that means that we have to deliver from a medical perspective everything that we can to either sustain or retain that capability. In order to do it, then, we have to deliver great outcomes. We have to be able to to predict who's going to be sick, ill, or injured, and what can we do to limit that? How can we minimize it? And when it does happen, then, how can we mitigate it? What are the right techniques, the right standard operating procedures, clinical practice guidelines to, to return those service members to their optimal health as absolutely quickly as possible? And in order to do that, we have to measure ourselves and the effectiveness of ourselves. And if we do it really well, that means that we have great outcomes. So outcomes, the measures of effectiveness of our healthcare, number one thing for us. Secondarily, our team needs to be a, a traveling team. So we have to be able to do that same sort of thing in the operational environment and to include then uh, combat wounded. And that's typically not done by an individual person, it's done by teams. And so each of us individually within our skills, are we ready to do not just the work that we do with routine care in, a, in America, some of which is complex, don't get me wrong, 
but it's different in an operational environment. In particular, it's different in a combat environment. So what have we done to make sure that each member of our team individually is ready in their skill set? So me as a surgeon, am I ready for those things that the force is going to ask me to do as a general surgeon in combat? And then secondarily, are we ready as a team to do that? So are we ready as an operating team to work together quickly, effectively, to optimize the care that we're delivering on the battlefield? That's a ready medical force. So we're practiced, we're ready, we're current and competent in our go-to-war skill sets. The third priority is uh, what are we doing as a system to make sure that our patients are truly satisfied with it? And what I mean by that is they find value in the system, that when we approach them, the feedback that they're getting from us is that we care about them, that we have empathy for what's happening in their life, that we find solutions to not just routine problems, but uncommon problems. And, and whether that's its access or the pharmaceuticals that we have available or the times that we're open or the intricacies that have to do with uh, service members and their families being a long way away from their extended families or the intricacies that are involved with the, the service member being operationally required or in a war zone and how are we Uh, impacting the other factors that go into the family member care associated with their service member being somewhere away. And then the fourth priority is that of fulfilled staff. And the way that I look at it is this. All of us got into healthcare for a reason. Generally, it's because we wanted to make a difference, a positive difference in the life of somebody else. And we thought healthcare would have with challenges associated with it and rewards associated with, with the idea that I really made life better for somebody else. Now, there's bureaucracy associated with every healthcare delivery organization, and there's challenges associated with it. We get to see the joys that come with it, like that of a a newborn baby or a a perfectly performed resuscitative surgery with with a soldier or a Marine, uh, an airman or a sailor, and we've returned them to full health. That that feels fantastic. But the staff also uh, help people go through some of the the most challenging times in their lives, and and some of that means end-of-life care and everything that goes within that. So from a fulfilled staff, my expectation is that we set up a system that makes it such at the end of every day, our staff go home and they say, boy, that was a day, but I worked hard and I can't wait to go back to do it again tomorrow because the system is set up in such a way that I feel that I'm making a difference and everyone to my right and left also feels like they're making a difference and collectively we're doing it on behalf of the United States for the people who it's an honor to serve, those who who are willing to do anything up to and include giving their life to maintain the freedom for the rest of us as Americans. Those are the priorities. That's important. So the magnitude of COVID-19 and the global pandemic is fundamentally redefining how healthcare is delivered across the military health system, MHS. Would you elaborate on how virtual health is playing a vital role in transforming how care is delivered? Well, sure. So, so one of them, I think, is the, the nurse advice line where some people just want a quick piece of advice about something. That's not generally the way that we approach healthcare in America. But as I mentioned, we went from a, a normal of about 2,000 phone calls a day to up to 10,000 phone calls a day. So the idea that that just piece of advice is there. Secondarily, there are many of us 
who thought that face-to-face uh, interactions with our, our physician or our, our nurse practitioner, our physician assistant, et cetera, was the right way to go. And yet we found that there's a significant, and by significant, I mean hundreds of thousands of opportunities per month where that level of care can actually be delivered by a phone call or sort of a video call where it's helpful to see other things, to see the skin or to see the facial gestures or to to better understand what it is that someone is describing to us. But yet there's much that we can do that doesn't require someone to be in the office. Similarly, we found other ways of dealing with the cost shares. Well, whether that's uh, cost shares that, that go with our pharmaceuticals or cost shares that go with that care that's being delivered through the, the TRICARE contract. We've waived a bunch of it, um, and we've simplified some of the, the billing processes such that it's better supportive of this COVID environment. And then, as I mentioned before, how do we make uh, testing available to people? Again, so they don't have to come into the facility to get the results of their laboratory tests or their imaging results, that we can make it available uh, through a, a secure portal so that people can see the results of it and through secure messaging, so a secure text messaging service, we can have dialogue either asynchronous using text messages or set up an appointment so that synchronous uh, telephone call can be made to discuss the results of these laboratory tests or imaging tests or that sort of thing. So all kinds of different capabilities that we found to be able to do that. Let's talk stewardship app. Would you tell us more about DHA's new antimicrobial stewardship app? How is it optimizing the standards of care across military health for treating infectious diseases like COVID-19? Yeah, that's actually, it's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. My guess is that, uh, that most people, even within our system, aren't aware of everything that's been done with this antimicrobial stewardship uh, application. Now, the app supports providers with relative guidelines, really evidence-based recommendation for the treatment of infectious diseases. And some of the reason for that is we've, we've noticed not just during COVID, but through other times, that if not done well, the treatment processes uh, sometimes don't end the way we want them to with failed therapies um, or prolonged healing, that sort of thing. So the goal then is to reduce the chance of failed therapy, optimizing healing, uh, and oh, by the way, from the quadruple aim perspective, how can we lower the cost by reducing wrong prescriptions, that sort of thing. So the way it works, uh, the app developed collaboratively between uh, DHA teams, including this antimicrobial stewardship program working group, our, our J6 team, so our uh, information technology team, and the connected health branch, who are, are really the, the gurus when it comes to making these applications. Now, it's a progressive web app that's updated routinely, and, and sometimes it feels like almost constantly, as the clinical information changes for what's the right way to treat this particular infectious disease. Now, it gives general prescribing guidelines for for common infectious diseases, it's organized by condition and by organism, and specific to the COVID-19, as research continues to come out with what are thought to be good therapies, and if they get more more um, uh, evidence that supports that, we, we publish that and say, yes, there's more to this. Or as emerging therapies appear perhaps not to be as, uh, as good as we hope them to be, then that's updated as well with the idea that no matter what the therapy is for COVID-19, using this web application, every single practitioner can have the absolute latest data on how we believe it can be best cared for. It's pretty awesome. As part of the efforts to reform the military health system, 
The Defense Health Agency is assuming administration and management responsibilities of all military hospitals and clinics from the services. Would you tell us more about this effort and the progress to date? How has DHA established the functions and management structures to support the MTF operations and markets? And what's the next steps in this process? Yeah, it's a, it's a really complex question, so I'll do my best to, to answer it. Four markets have already transitioned into the Defense Health Agency, and those markets are the National Capital Region, the Central North Carolina area, the Jacksonville, Florida area, and the Keesler Air Force Base, uh, Biloxi, Gulfport, Mississippi uh, area. Now, those are the ones that the DHA has management of right now. The plan, though, is a phased transition of every single medical center, hospital, and clinic into the responsibility of the DHA. That said, this global pandemic has really required a lot of resources. By that, I mean leadership resources, time resources, that sort of thing. And because of that, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Secretary Norquist, uh, approved a a 90-day pause uh, early in the summer with regard to all transition activities from the services uh, into the Defense Health Agency. Once this resumes, we'll begin with the next phase of the transition, and that would be five uh, really large multi-service markets. So in the the Tidewater area of uh, Virginia, the San Antonio area of Texas, Colorado Springs area of Colorado, the Puget Sound in Washington State, the greater Honolulu area in Hawaii, with the idea those are four really large, complex markets and work through all the details of bringing them uh, within the uh, oversight of the Defense Health Agency. I'll remind you that a market, again, a group of hospitals, clinics, medical centers in a, a defined, relatively small geographic area operating as a single system. And in so doing, sharing their staff, their patients' budgets, administrative functions, et cetera. And we also see this as an area to then uh, utilize the best practices that are found within the services, within the MTFs, the military medical treatment facilities that they've been managing before, and then using them as the backbone by which administrative procedures are standardized. Ultimately, we we see this process taking another year to perhaps 18 months for the completion of the transition of responsibility of every single MTF into the Defense Health Agency. Wonderful. If I may add to that as a follow-up, how have you worked to make sure the MTF transition goes as smoothly as reasonably possible? What are the implications for both staff and patients? Well, the the way that I think it, uh, it should be invisible to the patients. If we're doing anything that uh, in particular that has a negative effect on them, then we're wrong. So the only thing that they should be seeing, patients that is, is as, they, as we standardize these administrative processes, as they move from location to location around the world, whether that be through temporary duty or through a permanent change of station, they're pleasantly surprised to find out that there's not a local way of doing things There's a standardized way of doing things, and it becomes comfortable for them. So when it comes to making an appointment or using our primary care or specialty care, getting referrals uh, to a civilian uh, care system, the way that our labs work, our pharmacy work, et cetera, it'll be comfortable for them because there's a standardized process of doing it, and no matter where they go, it'll feel the same way. Similarly, when it comes to changes in the military health system, if locations are getting bigger, then how do we communicate that to the local populace? This is a capability that we didn't have here before. We are going to have it here now. Here's why we're doing it that way. 
here's why it leads to our readiness mission or here's why it leads to the better health or better care of our system. Similarly, if there's a reason that a particular location is going to become smaller, the capabilities that are being delivered in that location perhaps will be no longer present for uh, retirees, retiree family members, or, or maybe even not even active duty family members. How are we communicating it to them and how are we helping them individually if they're no longer going to get care within a DOD facility, one of our hospitals, medical centers, or clinics, and instead that care is going to be delivered in a civilian system, how are we helping them understand that? How can we set it up such that there's no drop in their care? Access remains the same. And we continue to deliver safe, high-quality care, whether inside our system or outside of our system. So the whole goal, then, is to make sure the system consistently improves and not one single patient feels like they've fallen through the cracks. Excellent. You alluded to the balance between readiness and healthcare. The DHA's focus is on delivery of healthcare while the services are focusing on readiness with DHA in a supporting role. Can you elaborate a little on your agency's role in ensuring the country has a ready and fit force, transforming the readiness requirement into actionable results, as well as working to ensure DHA has its own medical ready force? Yeah, and that's really fundamentally what we're about. The way that we have to ensure that is to have the best conversations with the military departments, with the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Air Force, to make sure that the requirements that they have for their service members from a medical perspective, that we do everything we can to minimize negative outcomes that would impact them or mitigate them as, as well as we can with either current practice or because it's a military health system, perhaps put more effort into things that healthcare uh, organizations in the civilian world just don't see as important to them for lots of different reasons. Some of it may be financial. Some of it may be there's not enough of that out there for them to be good at it. But we're a military health system. And so our efforts should be on optimizing the care that that then leads to that deployable medical force. Similarly, as I mentioned, as as a surgeon, my example, the types of surgical procedures that I do in America are the same sorts of operations that surgeons everywhere here in America do. But what I have to be able to do through both uh, the practice that I do as well as through simulation systems is be prepared to take care of people in operational zones, combat zones, that may have things done to them, to their body, that are different than what a normal practice of medicine or practice of surgery in my case would be. And if that's some of it uh, inside of our healthcare system, that's great. If some of it means going to a, a civilian trauma center, then we're going to have a partner with a civilian trauma system. If even with the partnerships with our civilian system still doesn't deliver it, then the simulation systems that can best lead me to be practiced and ready for my individual requirements in the operational zone, as well as what are our team-based requirements. So the services set the requirements. The Defense Health Agency sets up systems to be able to meet those requirements, and collectively, then, we assure both aspects of the readiness of the force. How is the Defense Health Agency changing the way DOD delivers health and care? We will ask its director, Lieutenant General Ronald Place, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
how does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Ronald Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency. My co-host today from IBM is Mark Newsom. General, would you tell us more about how you have sought to reform the governance and decision-making process within the Defense Health Agency to drive performance and system improvements? More specifically, how are you using data and analytics in this effort? So that's, that fundamentally gets at the nature of standardization of services. So the, the, the whole idea behind this is as we standardize our processes, the outcome shouldn't be we feel better about ourselves. The outcome should be how do we drive improved outcomes. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So if you look at the way that the clinical communities have been organized, and I'll give you an example of the, the mother, baby, or maternal child clinical community, how can we look at uh, the way that we practice medicine for this unique but large population and look at our outcomes and then make decisions on clinical practice guidelines to help then lead to better outcomes? So in our our women and, and infant clinical community, we leverage the care pathway developed by the Navy Medical Center at San Diego and because of better outcomes at that location, brought it into the, the whole military health system clinical community and really looked at the entirety of that, that clinical pathway and in some cases made some changes to it and then put it out for the entire force. Every single place that we have pregnant women and specifically every single place that we're delivering babies. And adoption of that pathway resulted in more than a 3% decrease in peripartum infections, almost 15% decrease in cesarean sections as a consequence of induction of labor, 14% decrease in neonates having to be admitted into neonatal intensive care units, those sorts of things. So by developing clinical pathways from the, the grassroots where it's really happening, finding those best practices, standardizing it across the entire system, learning it once, and then as it gets updated, of course, everybody updates it at the same time, but use data, big data, to show which elements of it seem to be leading to outcomes that we don't think are as good as they could be, changing those, and then following the course over time to optimize care delivery. I'll give you another example. In our behavioral health, 
uh, I think one of the biggest challenges in America today is how do you measure the outcomes of our behavioral health practitioners? And some of them, you'd say, well, it's easy. So they're, they're not completing their suicide or, or those sorts of things. And yeah, that's a, that's a really bad outcome. But what are some of the, uh, some of the other things? And, and one of the examples that I'll give you is use of um, some of the medications that are frequently uh, prescribed uh, for uh, behavioral health challenges, but yet are known to have pretty significant adverse effects. And one of those is benzodiazepines. And by using data within our behavioral health data portal, we're finding, again, clinical practice guidelines. What are the specific clinical conditions that, that these benzodiazepines may be helpful for? But yet, if it looks like they're being overprescribed in our civilian partners, or even in some cases within our system, how do we then provide feedback to our own practitioners for why are they using that particular medication? Uh, and if in further thought, is there a better medication? And across our system, uh, over the last two years, we've found that we've cut the use of benzodiazepines by just less than 50%, which ultimately prevents bad outcomes from happening to those particular patients. So it's a combination of those things. How do you use big data with very specific clinical outcomes led by grassroots clinical communities ultimately coming together to deliver those, uh, those improved outcomes? Would you tell us more about the MHS Genesis Project? What are the intended benefits of this transformation? And would you give us a progress report? Yes, sir. Thank you for the question. So the benefit is it is a tool that is more user-friendly than our current electronic health record. It's faster. It's more intuitive. Um, it's latency, meaning the timeline between when you want it to do some, the tool to do something and when it does something is better. Uh, and the patient safety uh, characteristics and tools within it are better. So that's the, the goal of this. It is it, the tool itself, the electronic health record, isn't the goal. The goal is how to use the tool to make healthcare delivery better. Now, some of the things that we're finding is things don't get lost in the system. So if you have nodes of healthcare delivery systems, so, so clinical records in multiple different locations, but if they don't speak to each other very well, in some cases, uh, imaging, for example, or laboratory testing can get, here's my air quotes, lost. In other words, we can't find the results anymore. And it's not, it's not limited to care within the, the military medical treatment facilities, that care that's delivered uh, in our civilian partners. Sometimes, for whatever reason, inside the bureaucratic systems or in, inside the information systems, you just can't get it out. Well, if that information was critical to the decision-making of the practitioner, then you have to repeat it. But if you don't have to repeat it, then you're not going to have what are called beta errors, which means everything is okay, but yet the test says something is wrong, which then leads to more testing, whatever that may be. Or in the case of imaging, if you lose it and you have to repeat it, increasing um, amounts of radiation, because significant numbers of our, our imaging capabilities require radiation to do, and that radiation load. So all kinds of different methodologies of making the care we deliver better, faster, and safer. Now, we're, we're still relatively early on, so the second part of your question is where are we in the, in the rolling of it out. We finished two different waves, so in the Pacific Northwest area and in the Northern California area, we have rolled it out. The Wave uh, 3 kickoff is coming soon. The Wave 2 is in Travis Air Force Base in California. 
uh, Naval Air Station Lemoore, Presidio of Monterey in, in uh, California, and Mountain Home Air Force Base in, in Idaho. So that's what we just did. That was Wave 2. Wave 3 is Wave Nellis. It's a little bit on hold. We're hoping that we can still roll it out here in September uh, if we're still in a good place from COVID-19. But Wave Nellis is Nellis Air Force Base, uh, Naval Air Station in Fallon in Nevada, 29 Palms, uh, Fort Irwin, both in California, Edwards Air Force Base, Beale Air Force Base, Los Angeles Air Force Base, and I believe Vandenberg Air Force Base. I think those are in uh, the next wave. Ultimately, it's about 20 waves. We still have uh, another about three years to go in this rollout process. But as we, as we continue to roll it out, uh, lessons are being learned, improvements are being made, the configurations of the systems are being upgraded, the ability of the tool to help us continues to be improved, and we're really excited about where we are in the rollout of uh, MHS Genesis. So, General, would you tell us more about your efforts at developing the next generation of TRICARE Management Support Contracts, T5. What are some of the changes and reforms to the benefits and services of these contracts? And how will the next generation of contracts expand value-based care models? Yes, sir. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk specifically about the T5 contract, as you've appropriately called it. And that's a continental United States TRICARE contract. TRICARE is actually a suite of contracts. There's also a TRICARE pharmacy contract, for which we have a, a mail-order pharmacy partner, we also have a TRICARE overseas partner. It's a suite of contracts, and they're all in different phases of being updated. But specific to the T5 contract, which is by far and away the biggest of our contracts, we're really leveraging um, the, the state-of-the-art in healthcare organizations here in America with the idea of, of leveraging uh, consulting organizations that help payers develop the, the best methodologies to deliver value from these healthcare plans. And so we're using a very wide array of different demonstration capabilities to figure out what are the best ways we can improve the administration of the TRICARE contract, or what are the best ways that we can uh, deliver um, accountable care organization activities in a particular location. Is there better ways for us to partner with unique healthcare delivery teams? And I won't name any of them, but is there specific partners in, in unique geographical areas who by their own mechanisms of driving their healthcare decisions by value-based, can we partner with them such that they can provide that to all of our beneficiaries or at least a, a lot of our beneficiaries in a particular geographic area? So we're still in the request for proposals, so we're still negotiating uh, with industry to see what's the right way to move forward with our next-generation TRICARE contract. But those are mechanisms or those are modalities that I'll expect that uh, we'll be able to see in our next generation of contract. Uh, how will DHA achieve its technology innovation goals in the current resource-constrained environment? For example, zero-based budgeting initiative pursued by DOD has reduced uh, by $1 billion the IT spending. So it, it, all of us are responsible to the American taxpayers to ensure that, that our taxpayer monies are being spent most effectively. And the department uses tools to ensure that zero-based uh, budgeting is, is one example of it. And in some cases, it's actually, it mirrors what industry does with the idea that once you've developed something, you better become more effective at it, which actually increases your efficiency. So rather than just, this was my budget this year, whatever inflation is, that's what it should be for next year, I should be able to be responsible for within my organization of, of doing 
things to find innovative ways to be more effective in what I do. That's, that's actually the concept of zero-based budgeting. And so when I talked about how can we standardize care within a, a unique geographical area, how can we um, bring all the, the patients, the staff, the budget, the administrative re- requirements together? The whole idea to that is using less resources to do the same or better care. And that's one way of doing it. So the, the standardization within the Defense Health Agency should have two functions with it. First of which, it should decrease unwarranted variation, which in an outcomes measurement modality should, should improve the outcomes that we're getting. But also, it should be able to point us to the areas that are less effective in achieving those outcomes. And if they're less effective, what are more effective ways of doing it? Effectiveness being a value-based thing, and, and then how can we use less resources on it? But then our requirement is to balance that against innovation. So if we say, hey, we're standardizing everything, that means nothing changes ever. That's not what standardization means within the Defense Health Agency. It means targeted innovation, where it appears that uh, a person or a group has an idea that by talking it through or by preliminary investigation appears to increase the effectiveness of what we're doing. doing. Well, then study that innovation. So put it out in a pilot and see how it does. So we hypothesized that it was going to be better, but what does it really do? And so it's a balancing of, of consistent, targeted innovation in areas that make the most sense for the Department of Defense against standardization, where we know by doing that we can use less resources. It's an important balance, and leaders at all echelons within the military health system both must understand that and implement it if we're going to have continuous process improvement in an era of standardization leading to better outcomes. I hope that answers your question. So, General, what are some of the major opportunities and challenges the Defense Health Agency will encounter in the future? And how do you envision your agency will evolve to meet those challenges and seize these opportunities? So, I think the the opportunity that's in front of us is uh, in telehealth and technology. I think most of us, for our lives, have just gotten comfortable with the idea that healthcare is something that's always delivered in person. And the pandemic has forced us, many of us at least, into considering other modalities for making connections about our healthcare needs. And many of us, both on the healthcare delivery side and on the healthcare recipient side, have decided, you know what, <laughs> this actually works for me for many of my relatively routine healthcare needs. And if that's the case, and, and we can spend less time per day because, in general, what we're finding is telehealth appointments take less time than face-to-face appointments, then that leaves more time for those that are more complex issues that, in fact, do require face-to-face. Similarly, we can then use these technologies that we're optimizing here in America for how we're delivering it and then considering what are some of the operating procedures that we could use in a combat environment where forces are distributed. In other words, they're not all collected in the same particular area and they're spread out. Are there technological solutions that we can pilot and improve here in America, whether during this pandemic or after, that then lead to improvements in, our, in, our, in the way that we support the delivery of healthcare in the operational environment? And then finally, how do we integrate that across the service responsibilities, so the Surgeon General of the Army, the Surgeon General of the Navy, the Surgeon General of the Air Force, and their requirements, along with the requirements that I have for the delivery of health care within the Defense Health Agency, and what are the communication capabilities and the matrixing of our organizations 
such that we're, we truly are not just say that we're all in this together, which we do, but we have methods of showing how we're all this in, t- in this together, which we don't have as many ways. And if we do it that way, then you'll really see a no kidding, mature military health system. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Well, um, I went into healthcare with the idea that I was going to be able to give back, that there was something that I was going to do that was of significant value to an individual person because of their experience with me and the specialty that I have and the care that I deliver for them. But when it comes to the military health system, it's not just the feeling of personal satisfaction and knowing that you're making a difference for an individual patient. Uh, It's also doing it for a particular beneficiary population that, in my opinion, is the most amazing, honorable population that exists in the world, and that's the United States service member. If you look at the, the militaries of most countries, their militaries exist to gain territory, to, to gain resources for their country. If you look throughout history, that's what militaries were used for. But that's not what the, the United States military is being used for for decades. If you just look at World War I or World War II, and we're there for the, the peace and prosperity of the world and protect the American way of life. And that means whatever it takes up to and including my life for you and that idea. And the concept for us as healthcare delivery people that we can support young men and women like that is a double benefit that's different than any other healthcare organization that I've ever been associated with. So to me, Healthcare itself is just incredible. It's a privilege to be able to do that every single time that I've invited into the life of someone with advice or surgical procedure or whatever it is. But specifically, when I'm invited in to take care of one of America's heroes, it's just uh, outstanding. And for that, I've been grateful for 34 years. Um, I hope I'll be able to continue to serve for some time yet uh, in the future. General, that's terrific advice. I want to thank you for joining us today. But more importantly, Mark and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Truly, it's been my honor, and I'm thrilled that I'm allowed to do it. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Lieutenant General Ronald Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency. My co-host from IBM has been Mark Newsom. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, you can subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan-Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.